We're back here on Monday Nitro on TNT. I am the Dirty Dog Oakland here with Steiner Hills. Steiner, why do you turn heel on Bret Hart last week on Nitro? You know, Dirty Dog Oakland, I've always had WCW's back. And now, for once, I'm saying stick it. Bret Hart came in, and he's trying to take over on the Stinger Hills. Well, that's all I need to say, is Bret Hart can stick it, you fans can stick it, I'm done. The Cho Cho Chosen One. You're listening to Main Event Status Radio. You started it. You want to go to war? You got a war. You started it. We gonna finish. With Mr. Beverly Hills, 90210. What is the fate of WCW? And I own WCW. The Dirty Dog Darcy. You want to fight, man? You want to fight? You got one. Only nobody tells me what to do. And she nobody tells me when to do it. Now let's get into the podcast. Recorded live. In Atlanta, Georgia. Where are we? Recorded live in the CNN Towers. Recorded live in the elevator going up and down, Jack. This is Men <laughs> Event Status Radio. I am the Dirty Dog Darcy, a.k.a. Mean Gene Darcy, a.k.a. Dirty Dog Okerland. I am with the one and the only Mr. Beverly Hills. What's happening, Hills? Oh, man, I'm... A- it's it's a good week. Uh, I'm out of school, so that's, these weeks are glorious until summer school starts up in a in like ten days here. So I'm enjoying it while I have it. Out for the summer. Yeah, more like for three weeks, because then I gotta try to get more money. <laughs> School's out forever. No, because then I'd have to find a different job. <laughs> How does that Pink Floyd song go? All in all, you're just uh, another podcast in the wall. Yes, yes. That is, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> That's more apropos than anything. What can I say, Jack? <laughs> so we are in part three of the book, The Fall, covering chapter five, 1999, Gabblin' on a Savior. As we do every podcast, Mr. Beverly Hills, what is your thoughts on the state that was 1999 professional wrestling? So I, 99 must be like the height of my pro wrestling fandom because when I was reading this, I remember every single thing that happened, like almost to the T. And I'll have some really weird like anecdotes to throw in. At, at random times here because th- this is like like I said the height of my early uh, you know 
sixth grade fandom. I recall, like I said, everything that was happening. I was uh, tuning in every week, um, flipping back and forth between Raw and Nitro, watching Thunder, then watching SmackDown, Saturday Night, Worldwide, Shotgun, all that crap. Like, I, I was the re- the two major wrestling companies, like, prime fan at that point. Because you were the prime fan of the company back then, Jack. <laughs> I had to open up my throwback Dr. Have. Pepper. Oh, okay. That can looks, like, green. It, it, it's, like, uh, like oh, ugly green. It's like, and, an, it's like an ivory kind yes, of color. Okay. Yes. Oh, take a swig for the working man. Take a swig for the podcasting man, man. Oh, are you okay? Sounds like you're going <laughs> to vomit yes. on air. I don't know. But, you know, talking about 99 professional wrestling, it was during the Christmas of 98 when I moved from Cambridge to Malacca. During yes. the middle of my, during the, the Christmas period of my fifth grade year. <laughs> so, only thing I remember about 1999 was watching Thursday Night Smackdown when it came on end of August of 99. Nice. So, uh, I may have some memories of WCW towards the end of the year. I think I have more memories of 2000 watching Worldwide once every month, maybe because of chores and all that on the weekends. But to me, if I found it interesting just reading the book, and well, we'll get into it at the end of the podcast, but I felt drained just reading through the chapter, like, holy cow, there was a lot that happened, and Artie Reynolds and Brian Elvers had to throw, condense everything down as much as they could, and it was we still... We per- get to 2000. Yeah. <laughs> 99 wasn't even nearly as crazy as 2000. But I, well, I didn't realize that until after I read <laughs> the next chapter, which we'll discover on the next podcast, but wow, I felt drained just trying to get through chapter 5 in 1999. <laughs> Right on. Well, I mean, if anything, that really tells you, like, where we're headed and, like, how um, it was difficult to sustain that. Because, you know, if even, like, I think they actually mentioned in this chapter, if you're having a hard time keeping up written-wise, or if it seems repetitive written-wise, imagine watching it. And if... You know, just reading reading the book about it. Imagine trying to keep up with it, watching it every week, and and that's I think what ultimately kind of leads to the fact that it closes. You know, in about a year and a half after this. Yeah. So for the hard hardcover uh, edition, the chapter five was uh, on pages one ninety one to two sixty five. I mean, whenever you <laughs> quote these like page numbers, I always just think I'm like. Uh, you know, open up to page three twenty five in your hymnal. Like I just, I just feel like that. Whatever you, whatever you go, and that's from page one ninety one. I just like, oh man, I'm back in church. Like <laughs> amazing grace. Just like when you do, when you're like, and this is from page one ninety one. I'm like, and I'm reading from Psalms. <laughs> I just had to say that I'm, as we're in chapter five, I always think that when you <laughs> see the page numbers. <laughs> You're welcome. Beautiful. Well, let's let's set up this first. So, yeah. so ninety kind of the so it's been a week or whatever just to kind of set it up for the listeners here. the The whole kind of thesis of their ninety eight was that um, 
they did everything wrong creative wise, but were not feeling the effects of it. Okay, that that's the big thing, and that kind of sets us up for this first quote that you're going to read here, is that uh, 98, they did everything wrong, but they weren't seeing the effects of it. In 99, there's, the chickens are yeah. going to come home to roost. Yeah, they're, that, there's ways they're starting to peak in ways. Like the like the roller coaster, you're at the highest peak. Yeah, they're falling all over the peak now. <laughs> so, from page 191, and I quote... But the sins of 1998 began to take their toll in 1999. Even worse, 1999 was the year that WCW made some of their most horrendous decisions yet. Decisions that, instead of turning things around as hoped, actually sped up the company's decline. Consider this. Just two years earlier, WCW was the number one wrestling company in the, in the, in the entire world. In, in the 365 days of this year, they managed to lose no less than $15 million. More money than any promotion had ever lost in the history of the business. Yeah, and I guess like what I get from that quote is that not only did they not like fix the problems of 98 they just exacerbated them and they made them worse and uh just kept them up which led to that huge loss that you just read about your your thoughts on that quote at all i guess that i obviously took it down because we'll discuss it here in the next few podcasts but to me it boggles my mind it blows my mind away i guess to read about a company that pissed away so much money and then yeah like what we've been talking about bad decisions made after bad decisions and oh the ratings haven't changed so who cares if we keep making these bad decisions and ultimately they shot themselves in the foot which we'll get into the next few podcasts in the next few hours but yeah it just blows my mind away that you know they keep going to the well with the same guys making the same decisions not trying something new, not building up new stars for the future. Yeah, $15 million. I don't think I'll ever, in the, my whole lifetime, combined, uh, see $15 million. And they, you know, did that in one year uh, just in loss. And that's hard to wrap my mind around in general. And whoa. Well, heck, just think of it. Just, just do the six man take team of Mr. and Mrs. Hills and the Dirty Dog. I don't think together the three of us would even get a small fraction of $15 million. No, no probably not in our whole lifetimes. <laughs> maybe maybe together we might see $1 million, maybe two at most. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you got rocking and rolling in, the, in your game. You might see that by the end of the year. I'll talk about it off, the, off air, Mr. <laughs> Beverly Hills. Coming right back at you, the Darcy man. That's your your next thing is you're gonna have a rap album. Tear it up, tear it up. But <laughs> kick some butt. Remember me, I'm the same old dog that I used to be. Still, the ringing dirty. <laughs> Don't give too much away, or else people aren't gonna want to buy it. 
<laughs> and back to Nitro. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. We'll see that. We saw that in 98, and we continue to see it in 99. Give away everything. They, yeah. they gave away all their big matches on TV, and nobody wanted to buy it. So, page 192. Here's my next quote. It's pretty long, Mr. Beverly Hill. So, if needed, interrupt me for we can break this up in little little parts. Do it. As the year began, however... Bischoff was anything but ready to surrender. He, he opened the year with another crew meeting in which he dropped a major bombshell. WCW struck a deal with NBC, a deal that would give them six primetime specials over the course of the year. This was largely due to an NBA strike going on at, at the time that had opened up primetime slots. Those within NBC thought that while it would, uh, it would not be an uh, even swap, it would, uh, it would be an uh, acceptable one. Not only that, those specials would compete directly against the WWF pay-per-views like WrestleMania and SummerSlam. It would be like the old days of Clash of the Champions specials, given, given, uh, giving WCW a huge advantage over the WWF. He claimed that WCW got it because the network wanted nothing to do with the WWF due to the raunchy nature of their programming. He said that while all the swearing and insanity might benefit the WWF at the moment, in the long run it would work against them. Bischoff was right, at the, right in the end, but unfortunately for him and many others, it worked not only against the WWF, but also against the wrestling industry as a whole. The, fir the first special was to air on February 14th. I guess what they're on back. Yeah, right. And I wanted to my biggest thing, which we can talk about. The biggest thing out of this quote. I read this quote and I saw your question. I was like, this is what you took out of this quote? What was the backstory to the Jeez. NBA strike? Okay, <laughs> the the NBA player strike. It was actually a lockout. Okay. Um which that's the the difference between a lockout and a strike is that the lockout is initiated by the owners of the teams and a strike is initiated by the players. So like we had a baseball strike in 1994 that resulted in the um, season being canceled. This is a lockout, but regardless, um, we almost always just call it all strikes, but this one, uh, it was based mostly on, um, salaries as, all labor disputes really are um and it was about uh the institution of a salary cap um which would limit how much each team could pay their players um and the players didn't want that they wanted to uh be able to sign for whatever max you know they could um ultimately this was kind of seen as a win for um, the owners, because at the end of this strike, which, or blackout, whatever, say I did it myself, um, and in, in February, early February, um, they played about 50 games, everybody did, and, um, yeah, it, uh, a salary cap was instituted, a rookie pay scale was instituted, um, yeah, and, it lasted about 10 years before we had another one <laughs> in uh, 08 because the players were like, what the hell? We just got screwed on this. <laughs> so, but okay. Now I want okay, to add to here since there's way more than just this freaking NBA strength thing. Um, 
thoughts on if um, WCW would have gotten six primetime NBC specials in a year? Uh, during this time was NBC and, and uh, USA Network, the two parent companies, were they separate at this time? Ooh, good question. I'm not sure. I might have to look that one up. Um, but go on it in, in, if, assuming they aren't, just assume okay, assuming they it, aren't. I felt like, I feel like if WCW would, uh, go, gone through with NBC with the uh, six specials, that would have been amazing for WCW because WWF was on NBC in the late 90, late eighties, early nineties with their Saturday night special Saturday night's main event. So I, I feel like if, you know, this major announcement that Bischoff dropped on the on the WCW talent about they got six deals with six specials with NBC, that'll be huge to go against. Yeah, their WWF pay per views against their biggest biggest shows. Yeah, I agree. And you know, we saw um, we saw in '99 that how big of a deal it was. That um, that WWF getting on UPN was getting on network TV. Um, now, when we look at 2015, it's not as big of a deal, and they're just as fine uh, as they are. But back in '99, that was a huge deal getting on network TV. It had been a long time since wrestling was on network television. Um, and if WCW could have jumped WWF on getting on NBC, getting on network television, that would have been a big deal. Um, as to answer your question, NBC bought USA in 2003. Also, okay, this is, yeah, we had two different companies, son. Yes. And was WWF on USA or TNN at this time? Do you WWF remember? in 99? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> I, I want to say they, they may have been on... USA for the first part of the year, I assume. It, uh, no, they moved to TNN in September of 2000. Oh, so they were still on USA Network, okay. Yep. Uh, I guess I, I wanted to ask, since you you probably have a better, better memory than me, since you had satellite during this time and I just had the basic channels, yep. what... Uh, what was there a lot many channels to choose from on cable or satellite back then, unlike today when there's a buttload of channels and crappy television? Um, yeah, there were a lot. Okay. There were a lot. We had we had the what uh, the hundred. <laughs> now that did include a lot of like kind of just junk channels or like music channels, but I think there was a good like sixty something channels okay. uh, that, that we could choose from. Well, cause what I can remember from 98 with having cable that we had, I think, about 50 to 60 channels. Yeah. And and unlike today, it seemed like you have pretty much double that. And <laughs> Could be, yeah. It, I guess, to me, if, you know how you mentioned that, you know, having wrestling on basic channels nowadays doesn't really mean as much because I felt like back then cable was starting to become more popular and not as many starting yeah so not as many people had cable or satellites so had getting on wcw get on nbc or in yeah later in the year wf get on upn it meant something that mm-hmm. people average joes who didn't have cable could watch could watch wrestling on their on their 
in the other channels. Right. I mean, and I remember, you know, in 99 or 98 or whatever, when I got satellite, I was definitely one of many who didn't have cable. And just thinking by the time that I graduated high school, I couldn't even think of many, like just anecdotally, uh, many of my friends who didn't have cable or satellite. It just started becoming like something that um, is part of our life because I just think like, Many, many people, like when I think about my students, all of them have the internet. Like, there are only a couple that don't. And that frequently goes right along with cable or satellite TV packages. So, you know, I just, we've came to a point where network isn't that much it is to a point, but it wasn't as to the same point. Of de- yeah, the prestige isn't as there, isn't as much there. Like if you look at ratings, the ratings of network television shows are still a lot higher than um, of cable shows, but the prestige of being on a network channel isn't as much as it used to be. Makes sense. I guess I'll get go on to my next my, my next point. January 4th seemed to be a big day in both the WWF and WCW. On pages 192 to 195, it was explained how uh, that we see Bischoff's plan backfire on him. Since January 4th on Raw was the night when Mick Foley won the WWF title for the first time. And then turn on Nitro, it was the finger poke of doom. Now, what was the finger poke of doom, Mr. Dirty Dog? It was when... It was an infamous night where we talked about last week when Hogan was going to, you know, was announcing he's going to run for president. And well, this he, one he's, he's announcing his running mate, okay. who his vice president's going to be. <laughs> and then, that, you know, I think, think this would have been the either the first or second Nitro after Starcade, and you, you, you might have had to fill in some details, but... I want to say second. Okay. Then Goldberg was going to get his title shot against Nash, and... Got arrested. Then, yes. Then Nash wanted to said that he wanted to defend the title. If Goldberg ain't there, he wanted to challenge, wanted a challenger. And Hogan came out and and all that. Then Hogan, he said that he wanted to challenge. Uh, he wanted Hogan to challenge him because he knew that that nasty Hogan was behind Goldberg getting put in jail. Then the match happened, and those two went face to face as most competitors do like we are now Mr. Beverly Hills and Hogan Hogan got took out his pointer finger poked Nash in the chest Nash took a bump and Hogan scored the victory and became WCW World Heavyweight Champion once again once again yeah and described by many as the best bump Kevin Nash ever took in his career then you had me <laughs> you had me explain the finger poke of doom I would like you to explain what Tony Schiavone said on Nitro in regards to Mick Foley winning the title. Sure. Well, it had been practiced ever since, you know, 95 when they went head-to-head that uh, Tony Schiavone or other commentators would, on the nights that Raw was taped, um, spoil them. Uh, you know, just to say again, well, we're live, whatever, whatever. Um, they... 
on this night, on January 4th, 1999, it was a taped episode, and it was the night that uh, Mick Foley won his first um, championship, uh, his first heavyweight championship. And uh, Tony Schiavone famously goes, uh, don't turn to the other uh, company. Foley's going to win the... Or Mick Foley, who wrestled here as Cactus Jack is going to win their title. And then he kind of derisively says, well, that's really going to put some asses in the seats. Uh, consequently, many people turn the channel. <laughs> so that's also did put a lot of booties in seats. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it definitely did. And as the, this one in, in this sense, I'll uh, definitely agree with the, what the book said. They were, they were right on the thing about, Foley is that he, at least in 1999, was pretty universally loved um, and very respected um, as just a guy who had kind of kept his head down in the sport, worked for, you know, 15 years, um, really paying his dues amongst many different companies. He was playing a really widely loved character at the time. He was over as hell. Um, so yeah, people did want to see that, <laughs> and it was an epically bad move to uh, try to try to do that. Now, I also want to get your thoughts on WCW trying to do the same tricks in 1999 that yeah you said they were doing in 1995 on spoiling Raw's uh, pre-taped shows. Yeah, I mean, I kind of touched on it, but like the the point is is that um, you, you need to know. Uh, that when they were spoiling a, uh, I don't know, a Mantar squash match, uh, that's a lot different than than spoiling a title change. Um, People still wanted to see WWF title changes, and they would turn for that. Um, Yeah. And then there was a good kind of anecdote in the um, book about how uh, Foley called Tony Schiavone because he was genuinely kind of hurt by that um, because, as we talked about, he's a stand-up guy, um, person who kind of really, what? Uh, weren't, weren't they, Tony and Mick, good friends too at that I time? I think so. Okay. I think so, yeah. And he, he just kind of like suspected that that wasn't him because he had a good relationship with him, whatever. So he called him up. And uh, at least in the book, it says that Shivani then called back, um, talked to Foley's wife, and was like, "Yeah, that wasn't me. That was uh, Bishop, presumably, yeah. or whoever was producing at the time." Told him to say that. And I believe Shivani on that one. He seemed like somebody who was just kind of. He always kind of seemed like he was more of a puppet, kind of just speaking what was given to him, for the most part. I'll kick it to you for the next couple notes, Mr. Beverly Hills. All right, so my first one is early in 1999. Um, <laughs> early in 1999, uh, there was a Ric Flair p- pumped up. Ric Flair versus Eric Bischoff hair versus hair match. Okay. Now, it was right at the beginning of Nitro. Um... And Bischoff somehow... See, I remember this like it happened yesterday. Bischoff somehow finagled it that it was going to be 
Eric Bischoff against David Flair, Ric Flair's son, right? And Eric Bischoff comes out in his karate suit and he's, uh, you know, uh, you know, throwing the chops or whatever. David Flair comes out and he's like super scared, but he's got the he's got the four horsemen with him, right? And, and the match goes on, and you know Bischoff's you know winning on on David Flair and and whatnot, and then I think Arn Anderson gives David Flair a roll of quarters, right? And he punches Eric Bischoff with it, and he's out, and. The four horsemen get, and he pins him, right? Win. The four horsemen get in the ring. They're all celebrating. And Mongo McMichael takes the roll of quarters, right? Now, he illegally used this roll of quarters. This is not illegal, right? He takes the roll of quarters. He opens it up and takes the quarters and puts them on Eric Bischoff's eyes. (laughs) And I'm just like, why would you do that? Because right now you're admitting that you cheated, right? Like, why would you, like, dance around with, with a club if you hit him with a club? No, he's he's taken the... And then there's just this amazing image of Eric Bischoff with these <laughs> quarters on his eyes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> do you remember anything about Eric Bischoff with the quarters on the eyes? No, I don't, to be honest. <laughs> Because I don't, I don't want to get your note for that. It made me think back when Jim Hurd was still the uh, booker and all that and wanted Flair to cut his hair and all that. And mm. I guess I was expecting that to, you know, the Flair versus pitch out to go a completely different angle than, than yeah, than what it what it did. Yeah, you would have thought Flair would lose because they always kind of put, uh, put him under. And uh, that was another theme in, in this chapter too, right? Like that that Flair is constantly being um, being kind of worked over. Um, yeah. Okay. My my next one. I'm gonna skip this this middle one. We'll okay. talk about that. We'll talk about Brett enough. But this next one, I just wrote Will Sasso <laughs> because do, do you recall Will Sasso at all? Do you even know who that name yes, is? Yes. Uh, he wasn't he a comedian on Mad TV. Yes, he was. Okay. Do and you remember him for one of his more famous... I remember him for two things. Okay, one, tell me. which was discussed in this chapter about him and Bret Hart. Yep. And two, him being on, I think, either Raw or SmackDown. Oh. One of those two shows as Stone Cold Steve Austin. When oh, okay. Stone Cold was in his what phase, and when Stone um, Cold was wearing his what t-shirt. Wasn't he on... It would have been within the last couple of years when they were doing that uh, Three Stooges movie. Yeah, he was on the, Raw again because he was in the yeah Three Stooges movie. He was curly. I I didn't. I thought they, uh, what's that word? Guest hosted yeah. Raw. Yeah, but he's still. I not, thought you were gonna. Will Sasso uh, is no Ozzy Osbourne, Daddy O. <laughs> well, best guest host ever. And Jesse Ventura's number two. And Jesse, actually, I thought you were going to say you remembered Will Sasso because he did a fairly famous Jesse Ventura <laughs> impression back in the day on Mad TV. But, uh, yeah, so Bret Hart was guest hosting Mad TV, question mark? Why that was happening? I don't know. I guess, like, I mean, wrestling was so hot, right? And, and The Rock guest hosted on um, Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And that got huge ratings. Um, and uh, I guess Mad TV being the knockoff 
Saturday Night Live win for the knockoff <laughs> person there. So he he's on Mad TV and he's in a sketch or whatever, and he puts uh, Will Sasso in a uh in a sharpshooter and he quote unquote won't break it like <laughs> he's being real so then will sasso shows up on nitro and costs him some matches i don't know i thought maybe you remembered it so <laughs> that's why right, i put that in only thing i want to say about that jack is will sasso shat on brought the <laughs> hitman heart i guess i just think like a lot of times WCW, and we'll see this in the coming years, really um, overestimated the value of celebrities and which celebrities are of value. And I think now, you know, I hate to do this, but now I I think WWE is doing that. They, They are overestimating the value of certain celebrities. Some are worth it. Some are Jeremy Piven and Dr. Ken. You know, you yeah. know, like so, some are some are Ozzy Osbourne, some are, are are the you know the kind of bad version. Some are Bob, uh, what's like Bob Barker, you know, the yeah. great celebrity host. Some are not so much, and you have to know which is which because like Will Sasso brings nothing. Um, later when they're doing concerts, you know, you have to know who who is driving people to the product and who's not. Yeah. I'll, get, I'll go on, on to my next note in regards yeah. to the WCW NBC specials. February 14th came to went and WCW's primetime debut on NBC never came to be. And this quote I'm about to spew on us is from page 200. <laughs> to be fair, this was largely due to two things. Turner Brass delaying negotiations repeatedly in the end of the NBA strike. Suddenly, WCW was not so coveted by NBC. Still, Bischoff claimed that they were merely postponed, which was quickly and correctly translated by his wrestlers to mean canceled and never mentioned again. Yeah, and that's you know that's just disappointing for the wrestlers because those probably would have been big paydays and uh, you know big. Um, widely widely viewed events so and we didn't mention that they were supposed to go against major wwf pay-per-views and this one would have been because yeah, february well, 14th yeah well, I, I did mention did you that, oh you know, i'm sorry yeah, i guess or they were planning against wrestlemania and SummerSlam, and yep. you're about to mention that february 14th 1999 was a major famous wwf pay-per-view that still gets talked about the saint valentine's day massacre pay-per-view were Fully and Rock, I think, had an ambulance match for the WWF okay. title. And I don't remember that one. I remember the, Austin the other versus, one. You're Austin match versus it. McMahon steel cage match for yep. McMahon's number one contendership match for the at WrestleMania in a steel yeah steel cage match where Big Show Paul White, the Giant from WCW, made his debut. And you're making making gestures. Explain to us how the Big Show made his WWF debut. He emerged from the mat like a sea monster from the sea, and he he ripped his way open, and then he <clears throat> choke slammed Austin. Well, kind kind of choke slammed, just kind of threw him into the side of the cage, and this was, I believe. Now correct me if I'm wrong. The last time that they used the big, wide opening cage, 
Yeah. It was painted black, but yeah, it was the dark. old blue bar yeah, one. Yeah, the blue bar cage. And he threw him into it, and the whole side came off. I think like I half swung, of it. It yeah, like swung, swung open. open. Yeah. yeah. It swung open, and Stone Cold dropped to the floor, so he won. But, man, that was quite a debut, and Big Show looked like a freaking beast. I think they may have had one. He looked like a real monster. I think they may have had one more Blue Bar cage match. I thought for, like, a UK pay-per-view, it was, like, okay. a triple threat match with Shamrock, Rock, and Mankind, I think. But sure, not, I don't think that many people remember that match compared to this match. Right. But, well, they def- And they also definitely used it in Arf, Arf, Arf. Kennel from Hell. Yes. Yes, it was the inside one of the famous, infamous, one of the worst matches of all time, Kennel from Hell. Yes. And I guess I want to get your thoughts on how do you feel like this this deal with WCW NBC falling apart, do you feel like that was another, another dent in WCW's armor in 1999? That's really a good way to put it, and that's actually the the exact term that I was thinking in my head. It was another chink in the armor. It's not something that necessarily was like a death blow, but it's one of those things that was another knock into this building. Um, all of these knocks coming that will eventually bring the company down. Um you know, and it goes to a lot of different things. It goes to promising the wrestler something that never came true. It goes to all, and we'll see in the next couple of years, all these big promises. Oh, well, we're going to get on NBC. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. That didn't come true. And um, which eventually led to the demise, right? Yeah. And I'll kick it back to you for your next couple couple points. All right. So this one, similar with like my Will Sasso and my uh, my other one, just not not so much with the big business related ones. These are more like the crazy ones that just are like, how did this make air? And I can definitely tell these are like the RD <laughs> parts, like the more wrestle crappy moments. And this is Ric Flair being kidnapped by the NWO in ski masks brought into a field, beaten in said field, NWO take their masks off, so why were they wearing masks in general, leave him in the field. Tony Schiavone's like, oh my gosh, will Ric Flair make it back? Flair hitches a ride in a turnip truck. (laughs) Honest to goodness turnip truck. And, um... (laughs) brought back to Nitro. And I just thought, like, you know, as I was reading it, it's just so surreal, like, that this is a thing. Right? That it... I am happy that I did not watch WCW during that time, because I know there's a couple other instances that I'm sure we'll talk about over the this podcast and next podcast about WCW and Flair, but how... I guess we, we beat this horse last podcast. Let's beat this horse again until it's dead. How silly did WCW book Ric Flair? Yes, the the Ric Flair booking in WCW, really, to be honest, from the time Hogan comes in in 1993 up until 2001 was uniformly crappy, like the whole time. And just on and on, just add to it, 
putting quarters on Bischoff's eyes, being, <laughs> being left in a field and brought to Nitro in a turnip truck. Uh, the, ne- oh, the next thing that happens to him, I'm so excited for. <laughs> um, it, it's just insane. It's just insane. Yes, so, it, it is insane, daddy Yo. Okay, my next point is I wanted to, you know, kick it to you. You're you're a big fan of these guys. Um, just in general, it just makes me so sad. The the whole vanilla midget thing um, that Nash w- was throwing around in regards to guys like, uh, you know, Malenko, Benoit, Jericho, Raven. But uh, evidently at a, at a meeting in early 1999... They see, they see the problem, and this is, like, truly mind-boggling. The problem with the company is guys like Flair, Hart, Malenko, Benoit, Jericho, Canyon, Bam Bam, and Piper are the ones that are bringing this company down. What? They didn't have a chance to bring it down. That's so stupid. Why would, like, these undercard guys be the ones that are, like, causing WCW to be a failure? That's just backward. We talked about it before we talked about it in the last I guess bullet point with Flair. We talked about it with Brett. We talked about it with Jericho. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We talked with both with Piper. <laughs> they're never given a chance or the their storylines just flopped. Yeah. And I just think it's sad that that Kevin Nash who is right around seven foot mark, anybody to him is gonna be a midget. <laughs> and I just think it's sad that you know, Nash had to throw out an insult like that, which I remember, I think, right around 2004 when Benoit and Guerrero were the were World Heavyweight and WWE champions in WWE at WrestleMania 20. And look at all, you know, look at all these vanilla midgets as <laughs> WWE's two main stars. And, you know, Jericho made it huge in WWE as well and, and all that. But I just think it's sad that. Nash had to hold people down just to keep a spot. And I just feel like the Vanilla Midgets line was another way to for Nash to keep a spot. Right. Well, it's just, yeah, it's just one of those things. Well, what is the one thing that I have that they don't? Well, it's size, right? Because they're better workers. They're, in a few cases, uh, more charismatic. Not necessarily all of them. I mean, let's be honest. Malenko and Benoit are pretty vanilla. But they're... Um, advantages, I think, far outweighed their cons. But but anyway, um, so he targeted the one thing that him and his buddies had that they didn't, which was size. And just um, thinking of it, I guess to tie it in with the Road to WrestleMania 11 series that we wrapped up a few months ago, yes. I just find it funny that this WCW is the second company that had that Nash was, I guess, held down Bam Bam Bigelow. Yeah. Yeah. Since he ways he him and the click held Bigelow down and WWF and now Nash is insulting Bam Bam and trying to hold him down again in WCW. Sure. Yeah, and I don't know why. I don't know why. I wonder if they they must have had some type of beef that I'm not aware of. Where's the beef? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right on Clara Peller. Um and then my next one uh was in nineteen ninety nine is when we have uh, Ray Mysterio losing his mask, and um, he looks like a child, like a teenager, without his mask yeah, in 1999. Looks very young. Even nowadays, he looks like a teenager. 
with his mask <laughs> off. He has, he has a very young-looking face, right? I wish, Mr. Beverly Hills, you and I could look that young now. <laughs> I look distinguished, my friend. Yes, just like Jesse the Body Ventura. Yes. <laughs> so I, I just thought that was, you know, that's another backward idea. Guys with masks can't get over whatever. Look at superheroes. You know, I... You know, Rey Mysterio was as close to a superhero, and WWF marketed him in that exact way. He got over, like, gangbusters, right? So I just think it's so, so backward. My favorite superhero has to be Mr. America. (laughs) Oh, God. But we're not talking about the WWF, Jack. Mr. America. That was the worst shit ever, dude. Yes. So, Mr. America. My next, my next quote on page 205, Mr. Beverly Hills, I have to open up my main event status. What? This is, a, this is your main event? Hallelujah and amen. <laughs> From page 205, and I quote, <laughs> Following Super Brawl, Bischoff attempted his latest publicity ploy. Shockingly, however, it had nothing to do with Nitro. Instead, Goldberg appeared on the Tonight Show and challenged Steve Austin to a fight. Goldberg had never wanted to issue this challenge, the challenge, rightly feeling that it made him look lesser of a star, or looks like a lesser star, but Nash and Bishop made it clear that he had to. Okay. And also around that quote, that Bischoff seemed rather bored when he made this ah, challenge. Sure. And no, Goldberg seemed bored. Yeah, Goldberg. Yeah, I'm sorry. Goldberg seemed bored when he issued this challenge and Shivani hyped it up. But it never aired on WWTV. For the better part, WWF never acknowledged this challenge either. How silly was this on WCW's end? As silly as it gets, man. That was dumb. Uh... Whenever you're number two, you look well. You know, I don't know. In general, you can you look dumb on both ends. Let's be honest. Like, it's better just not acknowledging the other one. Uh, focus on yourself. Focus on building up Goldberg. Uh, because in this regard, when they are throwing stones at WWF and WWF's not acknowledging them, like you said. Um, it they they look poor. They look like number two. Like that, all you can do is is try to get after number one, and they don't even care enough to to answer back, right? So, I don't know. What do you think? I just find it funny that you know we talked about the different wrestling magazines back in the day that we bought, like the Wrestler and Inside Wrestling that had you know fantasy mashups. Yes, and always. Seem like the biggest. One from the Monday Night Wars was Goldberg and Austin. Yes, hundred percent. And I just find it funny that Goldberg challenged Austin on the Tonight Show, and Austin never never acknowledged, and WWF never did either. And this was the first time I ever heard about such challenge. Which, oh, yeah. so e- either it was a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you want to look at it. Well, they, yeah. Oh, it's a bad thing. Yeah, I think a, I think they end up looking bad. Yeah, uh, which is uh, which is why I'm happy. I never heard about it before yeah. until reading the book. Yeah, you know, WWF was so big at that time they didn't need to. 
right? Like it was just like they they could do whatever. They don't need to acknowledge WCW. They they have passed them at this point. Oh, I guess I'll never go on. to look back. I guess I'll go on my next quote, Mister Beverly. All right, here we go. This is a, this is the one that I've been looking forward to. <laughs> From page two hundred seven to two hundred eight. Bischoff, in a pre-show Nitro meeting on March 1st, again claimed that the WWF strategy would backfire because sponsors would pull out within a year. History would would eventually prove to be correct. It just took longer than he thought. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, the company was going to change its course again. He went over a laundry list of things that would, would now be banned, including crotch grabbing, talking about hoochies and lewd dances, he said WCW was going to go in the opposite direction of the WWF because even if their ratings went down, if they had sponsors and WWF didn't, they'd win. It was a good theory. Mr. Beverly Hills, what the hell are hoochies? You are so such an innocent young boy. You ain't nothing but a hoochie mama! Hood rat, hood rat, hoochie mama! A hoochie, my friend, is a woman of ill repute. How sad is that? <laughs> no, it's, yeah, they, it's, uh, you know, the, whatever, a slut yes. or some other type of thing. It, so, so, yeah, uh, ask your next question, though, because I, I do have uh, talk on this, okay. on this quarter. It made me laugh that, uh, honestly, after I typed out that quote and typed in that question what are what the hell are hoochies i did go to the urban dictionary and find out myself <laughs> but i just thought just to add some comedy to this podcast i'll leave that question in well you did get me singing there so yes i go go to my next question i like the idea of going the opposite direction of the wwf but since they've been booking essentially a bunch of horrible angles it was a little little bit too late don't you think yeah uh Totally. I thought you, when you put this, I was like, you're, you're totally right. Because like um, presenting yourself as an alternative, presenting yourself as a family friendly alternative, especially when during this time period, uh, WCW, for whatever reason, probably because of who their stars were, their demos always skewed a little older, right? Like they're 34 to 45 was always a lot higher than WWFs. Now, that's not the key. 1830, 18 to 34 is the coveted demo. But um, anyways, going a little safer, going away from the, the lewdness, the hoochiness, whatever, um, w- would have been a smart idea. But as you said, two things. At first, as you said, they were so in such a tailspin, it, it'd be really tough to pull out of that tailspin. And number two, um, WWF and the style they were presenting, the attitude, everything, um, was so popular and such a hit that going away from the hood rat, hood rat, hoochie mama stuff uh, makes you look like a prude. And makes you look like something that uh, is uncool or unpopular. So now, yeah. I guess I I just thought of since WCW wanted to go wanted to be the opposite of WWF, could they still be a ops the uh, 
go the opposite direction of the WWF, but still have that attitude that was becoming popular in the WWF during well, that time? What I really think they should have happened is, um, I think this is, in, this is something that you'll be talking about later, um, is just kind of like uh, pushing reset. And later in 2000, 2001, Russo tries to do this a bunch of times to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. But if in 99 they would have made a concerted effort, we are going to be the alternative. We, we are going to be the ones that are not doing the attitude stuff. We are going to be the ones pushing athleticism, getting rid of these old farts, doing the exact opposite. I think it would have been a, a dark before the dawn type of situation. Like things would have sucked for a while while people um, are like, this isn't WWF. This isn't what I like. I'm not going to watch it. But at some point they're going to start saying, this isn't WWF. This is what I want to watch. <laughs> so no. I think, I think they could have had a chance at this point to just kind of like, we're going to do something entirely different. Um, because a lot of times when you're fighting a battle, um, and God, TNA is learning this lesson, you can't try to do the same thing as your competitor if you don't have the same resources and the same, um, like talent, right? Yeah. Like they're they're learning that, um, and so sometimes the only thing you can do, like kind of what Ring of Honor has tried to do over the last twelve years is be different and uh, try to grow incrementally as you can um, and, and you know, try to win that way. And I wonder if WCW would have been better off doing that. To your point that that's something that, I guess, Impact is learning now. And, you know, like I said, ROH is gaining steam. So is um, Lucha Underground is mm-hmm. gaining steam. So, like, People are buzzing about Lucha Underground being signed again for season two, and people all want to, right. people want people want a season two. Sweet, I didn't that. see that. Did they officially sign? I, I don't know yet, but at least oh, I know okay. people I are people. I'll say, as you guys can hear with Mister Beverly Hills's reaction, people <laughs> want a season two and yeah. because it's something completely different. I haven't watched an episode yet, but I've been hearing the reviews and how great. It, it is to have something completely different, which is I, I appreciate about ROH and Lucha Underground. I want to see, even if it's not like it was back in the 90s, like we're reviewing with Death of WCW, but I would love to have somewhat of another wrestling boom happen again, even if it's on, I guess, the, the indie side of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to have another boom of having people be interested in wrestling again. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I agree. And I think we actually are kind of going through kind of a renaissance where there are a lot of different places where you can get your wrestling. And whether it's on the scale of the Monday Night Wars, that's one thing. But the fact that there are, you know, four wrestling for, you know, and then if you count things that you can stream online, 10, whatever wrestling companies that are nationally distributed. I think that's great for for everything. Yeah. You know? And it is awesome that we're starting to, I guess, get a Wednesday Night Wars notice. Yeah. But yeah. something to that's completely renaissance and tying it back in with 
1999 is your next note, Mr. Beverly Hills. So I am happy to say I own this pay-per-view on VHS. Do you really? Well, yes. then you might have to help me out more because it's been a long time since I've watched this. So, Uncensored 1999, um, we have in the main event Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in a first blood match. Uh, both of them bleed. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay before you go, okay, this go is ahead. a first blood match yes. for Hulk Hogan's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And also, if, if I remember correctly, if, if Flair wins, he gets the world <laughs> title, he becomes WCW president for life. For life, and if Hogan wins, I think Flair has to retire. <laughs> okay, but, but as you as you said, this was a first blood match, and both guys bleed. <laughs> and then it ended when Arn Anderson threw a tire iron to Ric Flair, who used it on Hulk Hogan and pinned him for the win. Do you know who the referee was for this match? Oh my gosh! Please tell me. To be the man, woo! Yeah, be. A, a little nature or boy man. <laughs> awesome. And awesome. Well, I, don't spoil it, man. Come on. That's I, my big thing for later. I love this match because it was a steel cage match with no door, so they, the guys had to come into the ring first, and they lowered it, lowered the cage on like you just lowered your little doggy. Uh, and top of the cage was razor wire, which, oh which made me what? laugh. And I th- even think David <laughs> Flair even made an appearance and wa- try to help out Hogan at that time. And yeah, because by this point, two months later, David Flair has turned to join the w- NWO. Yeah, so it just made me laugh that you mentioned that, that match, and I know on former guest of the podcast, Jason Mann, did you know cover this, this okay. main event before, and I remember listening to it, and it was, uh, which ties in with my college degree of philosophy, that they were talking, him and his guests, I don't remember who, were saying that this angle was, in a way, a post-modern wrestling angle. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? What does that mean? Post-modern. Tell my, tell my little brain what that means. Post-modernism is the same thing as relativism. Okay. Which means well, what is true for Mr. Beverly Hills is what's true for Mr. Beverly Hills. What's true for the dirty dog is true for the dirty okay. dog. Okay, that makes and, sense relative. That makes sense. Yeah, and I have no right to project my truth onto you, and you have no right to project, pr- project your truth onto me. In essence, there is no absolute truth. But when it says first blood, though, isn't the truth that it should end when the person bleeds first? That's all postmodern relativism there, baby. That makes sense. I feel like like something, a postmodern match would be like the match ends when it ends. Which is, it ends with the pinfall. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, if they advertise it as an ending match and and it ends when it ends so like my truth is that it should end with a pinfall your truth is that it should end when the fan man comes and picks up homer simpson and flies him to safety like that would be postmodernism right because like you would be like yeah that's the end me i'd be like yeah i don't know about that but i feel like when you specify first blood that be means, first blood. yeah, they've they have, in essence, told me what the end should be. And as you first noted, Mr. Beverly Hills, that 
my senior year in college, I hated because my last senior philosophy class was on relativism, and I had to write <laughs> my senior paper on relativism, and I hated it for the fact like what you mentioned. Okay. <laughs> so we'll move on because this ain't the philosophy cast with Mr. Beverly Hills and the Dirty Dog Darcy. <laughs> this is Main Event Status Radio. This is the Death of WCW series here on MainEventStatus.com. I, I will tell you, though, uh, philosophy was the only class in college that I got a C in. So, <laughs> yes. so it is It is certainly not my forte. That's all relative, homie. <laughs> so, let's, Boom! Let's Postmodern post grading. <laughs> let's go on to my next note. On March 28th, Goldberg and Bret Hart had a match where, on Nitro, it wasn't even hyped up. Yes. On page 212, and I quote, that backstory, obviously, was that WCW had dropped the ball on Brett since the day he signed his contract. You would surely notice that since Montreal, very, very little of importance has happened in regards to Brett's run in WCW. Despite being paid almost $3 million a year, he had been booked into oblivion. In the months leading up to the show, Nash made it clear that he didn't think Brett was a draw and that his contract was completely unjustified. <laughs> I want to get your thoughts on, well, two things. On the poor build of Brett versus Goldberg, and your thoughts on Nash crapping all over Brett, which I guess we talked about with the Vanilla Midget, so I guess, what's your thoughts on the poor build of Brett versus Goldberg? Well, well, that's one thing. I will talk about the, the Brett thing in general. I think that is perhaps one of eh, maybe three uh, of the biggest balls they dropped um, in in their time. Why would you spend such insane money to bring him in and then just shit on it the whole time? I just don't get it. Yeah, that, you know, we talked about in the 97 podcast and, you know, two podcasts ago that it's silly that, like you said, Bret Hart was... Bret Hart was yeah, Bret Hart was such a hot commodity coming out of the WWF, and when he was brought into WCW, what a crappy angle he was brought into. You know, the yeah. Larry Zbyszko-Bischoff match, then yeah. the whole debacle at Starkin 97 main event with Stan and Hogan, we talked about talked about it already, with no point of, you know, beating it, beating it again. Yeah. But, yeah, that, you know, like you said, if you're going to sign somebody such a great talent for that much, you know, same with Ric Flair, and you're going to just bury him into oblivion what's the point i i just don't get it i just don't get it so yeah what's your thoughts on nash crapping all over brett oh i well it's all just him you know uh just trying to hold his spot i guess just in in general right he always is doing that it makes me laugh since you know we reviewed rubble 95 earlier this year and that made that WWF title match was Bret Hart versus Diesel and that match was fairly decent. You know, yeah. Bret, Bret was able to get a good match out of Nash and Nash should should you know should realize that and you know if Bret followed Nash to WCW, why not try to re- relive some of the some of that past glory and you know, Bret Hart can put over guys who aren't as good like Nash over in a acceptable match if not a decent match yeah so why not use brett to help build up new stars for the future but i forgot 
WCW isn't into those kind of things. Oh, man, they are so not into that. I just want to sigh. Sigh. <sighs> Whatever. It's a big sigh. <sighs> Something that, I guess, sadly enough, kind of leads us into my next point. The whole Owen Hart situation that happened. Yeah, I don't. That's, that's just disappointing in general. I don't want to talk about how he died since people know, but we're not beat. We're we're putting yeah. smiles on people's faces. Which I want to talk about. Which leads us <laughs> to my next point. And first, I'd like to quote from page two sixteen. Okay. Hours yeah. after the accident occurred, Bischoff met Brett at the airport and charted uh, charted him a flight back to Calgary. He told him that he didn't expect him to come come to Nitro at any point in the future and that he could take as much time off as needed to get through this. Brett strongly considered retirement, feeling that he, the feeling he'd never get his passion for the business back. It would be virtually impossible to ever feign anger toward anyone for a wrestling storyline again. Obviously, all plans to do a Brett vs. Goldberg program were shoveled indefinitely. I guess I wanted to... I guess, you know, applaud WCW for that, that Brett and Bischoff were going to Los Angeles to, I think, go to go up here on Jay Leno's The Tonight Show, I believe. Okay. To do a storyline okay. angle, which is why they're, you know, Brett, uh, Bischoff is meeting Brett in, you know, in an airport. That Bischoff is going to pick up Brett. I guess I want to get, wanted us to talk about our favorite, favorite Owen memories that we were watching TV while growing up. Our favorite or our favorite stuff off the WWE Network or YouTube, or whatever awesome mem- fun memories we have of Owen to, I guess honor him. Okay, well, first off, I I guess before we get into that, I will say that I thought that WCW did handle this pretty admirably, pretty admirably, both in letting Brett take off as much time as he wanted and giving him an open mic when he came back and allowing him to do the tribute match with Chris Benoit later in the year. Um, I I thought as much as they did a poor job with Brett in in this regard, which it's, it's no consolation to losing your brother, but in giving this to him was very well done. Oh, I so agree, yeah. I want I want to say that first, but um, you go first. Okay, I guess my favorite Owen memory or match probably has to be obviously the WrestleMania ten match that he had with with Brett. Uh, I feel like that that match and that program helped build Owen Hart up from I guess a jobber at that time to a mid mid Carter at least to a fill in mid event heel that if they ever needed one. I felt like, you know, his SummerSlam match with Brett in a blue bar cage was <laughs> awesome and all that. And you know, we loved Owen Hart's work, you know, when we reviewed the Roto WrestleMania 11 series. I guess that some of the, hearing some of the stories of Owen pulling ribs on guys backstage, I can't remember specifically anything, but just hearing, you know, Jimmy Corderas, who does a podcast, he used to do, you know, talk about some some ribs that Owen Hart would do and, and all that and just other guys too just hearing you know fun memories of Owen and people wrestlers look back at Owen and fondly which I which I think is awesome comparing to uh, how he passed away sadly enough right but just you know, hearing people remembering Owen in a, in a positive light I guess is always 
touching on for you know yeah just touching yeah he really seemed like a true as he and Brett would say a real bang up guy and uh, I, I haven't heard anybody speak poorly of him uh, really in general um, and uh, yeah favorite matches I guess would be that definitely the Wrestlemania 10 one that, was, that, that match is awesome um, yeah I don't know I don't have a ton. I don't have a ton. Uh, this is his his run, his ninety four ninety five run. Outside of me rewatching those pay per views, I didn't really uh, hit too hard. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Not a ton. Just from our rewatch, I guess. And he was a real star in our rewatch series. Um, he did he did some real good work. Well, we'll move on to my next point. Diamond Dallas Page won the world title at Spring Stampede 1999. From <laughs> awesome. You wrote Spring Stamped. <laughs> yes. Now, that would be a great pay-per-view of old ladies making stamps. Yes. And, or like a stamp collector's convention. Tonight at Spring Stamp 1999, old nerdy Ned tries to complete his collection of the Elvis stamps. I'm sure Mama Hills and Mama D would be at that show. Huh? Yeah, maybe if it was like spring sewing. My mom's a big sewer. But yeah, Diamond Dallas Page won the world title at Spring Stamp in 1999 from the from Ric Flair, and the match also featured Sting and Hogan. From Page 218, from a, from an athletic standpoint, it was no big deal to put the belt on him because he was a hard worker and he usually had very good matches. The problem was that WCW, over the last two years, had gained a reputation of being an old man's company and taking the belt off of a 50-year-old uh, off of a 50-year-old and putting on a guy that who looked 50 did nothing to counter that stereotype. I laughed at that quote, which is why I had to, <laughs> had to mention it. What's your thought? What's your thoughts? Well, I guess we mentioned this over and over and over again. <laughs> hey, it's a big it's a big talking point from from WCW. Thoughts on not giving younger talent the chance of running with the world title. The one thing is I I think this is the one exception though because Paige was was as they said, you know, a, a really hard worker and a good wrestler. Uh I think he's the one exception to the rule and uh yeah, I think he was a fresh enough character that his chronological age or even his skin age uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he um, was old. Yeah. I don't know. He'd, he had only been wrestling, you know, for three or four years at that point, not counting his managership. Um, and so he was still, I think, a fresh character. Um not like, you know, Hogan who had been on TV for going on 20 years, Nash 10 years, you know, whatever. So we gave it, you know, at least somebody, uh, I guess, it weighs TV age, not that old. At least they give somebody a, a chance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, th- I think he's the one exception. Uh, not saying that they were doing a good job at this at all, but yeah. And I had to, I guess, get to my next point because I know. WCW Saturday Night was huge for Mr. Beverly Hills. From page 219. While Nitro's ratings had unquestionably began or begun a downturn, other WCW shows were in a flat-out freefall. Long-time WCW fans are probably wondering why little mention 
have been made so far in the book of the company's other television programs, Thunder and WCW Saturday Night, as well in this podcast. The main reason is that the authors decided to give the shows as little, as much attention as WCW gave them, which, as we saw, were essentially zero. <laughs> yeah. Thunder was considered a, a show for a week or two, and from that point on, it was just a two hour, two hours of mostly filler. WCW Saturday Night made Thunder look like Raw at its peak. When you have a wrestling show and you treat it as filler, fans quickly stop tuning in. I wanted to bring that up because, like I said, I know you were a big fan of WCW Saturday Night. Huge I remember, fan. I remember a couple years ago when we were, I think, just about we're hashing out the details on doing this podcast. I know you, I think, got some old WCW Saturday Nights on DVD that you were reviewing. Oh, from 1989. Yeah. I guess what's... I, would like us to discuss any memories of watching Thunder or WCW Saturday Night during any period. Yeah, man, I in this time, I would say that I had probably watched more WCW Saturday Night than any other of these wrestling shows, which, is that a good thing? <laughs> Maybe not, but, uh, man, I... I was always tuned in, mostly because nothing else was on. You know, that was a kind of a dead point six oh five on a Saturday night. You know, what else is on? Um, so I remember freaking Mark Jindrak and his basketball gimmick. I remember hole in one Barry Darso try you know doing the putt putt challenge. I remember Chip Minton, former Bob Sledder. Remember all those guys, man. That was a bomb here. Kenny Chaos getting a push. Uh, Jim Duggan finding the the uh, television the title. U- television title and the turlet. All that stuff. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was my bag, man. I guess for uh, WWE Saturday Night, I don't ever recall. I don't have any memories of watching it live. But I do remember on YouTube, this would have been from like 93, watched a, I think, Falls Count Anywhere match between Cactus Jack and Vader, I think from 93. Okay, sure. Which well, was, that was back when it was still like their main yeah, show. Which I thought was pretty decent. Uh, Thunder, only memories I have of that was, I think, in 99, my one of my aunts who lived in, who, well, I guess still lives in Cambridge, that she, her and her daughters would be my cousins when I think on a vacation for a week or whatever and my mom was working in Cambridge at that time I had I think I had a week off for spring break or summer off or something and I always spent a few nights down at my aunt's house you know the house sat and we I watched WCW Thunder do I remember anything that was on Thunder no I don't <laughs> sure. but I do remember tuning in and all that and uh, I don't remember anything of WCW main event I know I'll be you know, talking about it next week in the next podcast, but I mentioned before, I do have some memories of watching WCW Worldwide in 99 2000. Okay. So, sure. I guess I'll kick it to you on your, your next couple notes. Okay. This is my biggest point of all. Ric Flair being crazy, being put in a mental hospital, and then while he was being crazy and in the mental hospital, little nature boy Charles Robinson, WCW president. I laugh because when I saw that note today 
right before we started to record, when, when I, right before our producer hit the record button, a couple days ago, I saw on Charles Robinson's Twitter page that somebody had a gif of Charles, Charles Robinson as WCW president <laughs> in a suit acting all crazy and going, you know, I like Flair going, you know, acting crazy and going up to the camera and going, woo! It, it made me laugh. Oh my gosh. Oh, Rick Flair was in a mental hospital, okay? This mental hospital was very clearly like some elementary school gym because <laughs> the only set they used was this one room. It had a basketball hoop, it had like the white tile floor. Um, He's there. Scott Hall is there for some reason. Um, and he's got his robe on. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's back at Nitro. And his explanation, Arn Anderson bailed me out. <laughs> you get bailed out of mental hospital? Because I had family members in the mental hospital. No, you can't get bailed out. Yeah, I don't. I was like, I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, there's two things that you can get out. You, if you by yourself go in, you can yeah. voluntarily check take yourself, yourself out. Yeah. Or if you have people check you in, only way to get out is if your doc, the doctors say yeah. you're good to go out. Yeah, and your prescription. I know this was, if you're prescribed to go in, you can be prescribed to go out. Yeah, yeah. and all. This, you know, we you mentioned it. You know, brought it up to as a joke, and it was meant to be a joke. But Sorry. you know, since mental Ill, mental illness runs my family, and oh, and and it's we, certainly no joke. I'm yeah. sorry if I no 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 it's no offense, but I just wanted to mention that mental illness should, shouldn't be made a joke. And I feel like because of that, and because how WCW booked Flair, I just feel like this is another slot to Flair's face. Sure. Yeah, no, Flair, yeah, Flair did as great of a job he could to make this as comedic as possible, which. <laughs> Him strutting around the yeah. mental hospital, which makes me makes me laugh and all that, but yeah, just yeah, just I don't know. W, like we said before, WCW booking of Ric Flair and Bret Hart and so on, and the other Vanilla Midgets. I just <laughs> find it to be a little silly, and I guess yeah. if I was like Ric Flair and considered a Vanilla Midget and booked the way Flair was, I would go crazy too. <laughs> well, let's be honest, wrestling in general isn't exactly the most nuanced of <laughs> of things. So when you give them touchy subjects, like look at wrestling's history on uh, booking homosexual characters. Yeah. Look at look at wrestling's history on race relations. Not not the mental mental health. Not the best. So yeah, um, then, at but- least this was funny. But then again, wrestling the way as I guess it's supposed to be tuned in for for fans as something to I guess forget let them forget about about the world for an sure. hour or two or whatever else. So I guess WCW I guess did that with Rick Flair at this time, which I had to applaud them for. Yeah, true true enough, true enough. Okay. Um let's see, do I wanna skip either of these? Mm. I think I guess in general one of the big problems that WCW had was uh, really ping-ponging the title back and forth. Um, we talked about that some yeah. last podcast with the TV title, but go on. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, I mean, that's the TV title. This is the world title. They had it switched three times in one night. Um, I remember one time where I think DDP walked in 
as Champ lost it to Stan, then later on won it again from Stan or something like mm-hmm. that on Nitro. If memory serves me correctly. Yeah, and that serves no good. It's just everything's poor. On and that, so I know we talked about it last week with the world title. I felt like, I guess nowadays with WWE with the WWE title, even though I f- feel like they're doing a better job of it in the last year after Brock won the title from Cena at SummerSlam, that I feel like you know any wrestling company that would ping pong their title a lot yeah. would cheapen the title and yes, and would hurt the title. Like I know you were saying last week that you know it's in the company's hands to build up to build up the prestige of the title to the fans, and if you cheapen the title. You know, to the fans, the fans are going to see the title as cheap. Yep. So, yeah, just I feel like, yeah, like, you know, with your note about ping pong in the title or any title, that cheapens that title. And why would the fans care less about a title title match? And if the title changes, who cares if, since the company made it seem that the title doesn't mean a damn thing? Yep. Yep. I totally agree with you. You can't, if they don't care, I don't care. And one thing I do care about, Mr. Beverly Hills, is my next quote. Do it. From page 226. Sadly, those in charge at WCW had zero patience. Nobody had a two-year plan to turn the ship around. They wanted to turn the ship around that week. By any means necessary, past history should have, should have made it clear that hot-shutting generally does more harm than good. But for whatever reason, nobody internally, at least nobody with power to do anything about it, could see that. Despite the fact that evidence, in form of ratings and buy rates, was readily at their disposal. I guess with months of horrible booking and driving their fans away, Mr. Beverly Hills, should they have had their main eventers, uh, I guess beating the bush again, should the main eventers put over the younger talent and actually had a two-year plan on, let's say, I don't even know who Billy Kidman in 1999. Yeah. Might be a bad example, but let's say you guys like Billy Kidman or Chris Benoit. Okay, in two years, we want these two guys as legit mid-eventers. Let's start building those guys up in the next couple years. Do you think... Yeah, and this... Oh, sorry. And this is actually what I talked about earlier. Where, where, like, this was the quote that I was alluding to where, yeah, if at some point I do think they should have, like, like I said, hit restart um, and started, you know, pinpointed who they thought were going to be the history, or not the history, who they thought was going to be the future and uh, move in that direction. So, yes, I do think they definitely should have done that. And I guess to kind of talk about zero patience and hot shotting things, look at the NWO angle from '96. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. the, the rate, the buy rates, and the ratings didn't turn around right away. It took yeah, took time. And WC, you know, WCW was about three years away from you know three years away from that, and they should have looked back to history like, okay, yeah, this NWO thing didn't it didn't hit too well. Then turn the bell right away. You know, it took and, time. And, and, and the sting, the sting slow burn in '97. Yeah, their example of that. Yep. So yeah, they, the, the, you know, hot shotting doesn't get really lead much. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. but they were all about that Tuesday morning. 
Yeah. That's and, all that mattered. And I once the one thing that made me laugh was in my notes was the Great American Bash nineteen ninety nine situation. Yeah. Where the announcers, Mike Tenay, Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone, ran down the card on pay per view because they failed to promote any matches leading up to the event, which I find to be hilarious. And I'll lump this in to the September pay-per-view where in national papers there was an ad that said, we're the advertising agency and they won't even tell us who's going to be there. For God's sake, don't miss it. And then it said September 12th, time to be announced. So, yes, those two things go together. Um, yeah, what the hell? Why? Why? Oh, my God. They didn't promote it. Why would so they foolish. promote it? Because I know I think right around this time it may have been before when I had cable in 98. But if I remember correctly, for like the first five minutes of the pay-per-view, they gave <laughs> it away for free. I think okay. that – and I do remember like one or two pay-per-views t- tuning in and – Watching it for, it for like five minutes and had announcers first ran down the card. Then for the first match, like the first or second second entrance started to come down and yeah, the feed would cut out because I, I wasn't a paid subscriber, <laughs> so which which made me which I guess made, made me laugh like what it just did for you. Had it, <laughs> but I just find it stupid that yeah, the Great American Bash in nineteen ninety nine they had no advertised matches for it like. Why would I, as a fan, pay thirty to forty bucks back then to watch a pay per view when there's no advertised matches? I, yeah, you're <laughs> because like you're basically counting on your TV to sell the pay per view, and the TV's been so crappy. How how is it expected to sell it? Silly WCW tricks are for kids. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, but whatever. <laughs> and hey, man, whatever. My next note I had to take note of because you and I loved, loved, loved this song. Yes. Master P, and I guess I want to get your thoughts on the Master P and the No Limit Soldiers against Kurt Henning and the West Texas Rednecks feud. I think I can sum it up by saying this. I like country music. I like country girls. I like girls. country girls. I like Willie Nelson. Don't forget about Earl. Merle. Merle. There's only one thing that I hate. And it's a bunch of crap. I hate rap. Except I do love rap. But rap. this amazing song. Rap. It's crap. It's crap. <laughs> I, I love that song, I know WCW, I think, came out with a CD called, I think, WCW Mayhem, something like that, and they had that song on it, and I think you and I played that song over and over again a lot when we lived together, if not played it on YouTube, because that <laughs> yeah. song was great. Oh my gosh, I love that music. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, the West Texas Rednecks, Kurt Henning, Barry Windham, Kendall Windham, Bobby Duncombe Jr. Yeah. Awesome. And it's another example of them having no foresight. You know, these guys were the heels and they were getting insane cheers because WCW runs a lot in the South. 
um, country music. The the first verse that we just sang or recited is truth in many states of the southern United States, right? And yet these guys are supposed to be the heels. And so when they start getting cheers instead of turning them face, they drop it. Uh, I guess I can see it working maybe in the WWF since they're up in base out of, you know, north northeast. Maybe AWA, maybe. Like (laughs) I said, I like country music. I like country girls. Like, yeah, like if you're, like you said, if you're fan base is based out of the south and southern music is based around country music yeah. you know they're tied yeah. together like why insult your fans like that yeah and also it was super funny too like and it wasn't like funny in a i'm laughing at them way like they were doing that you know you could tell they were really doing it in a, in a tongue-in-cheek fan manner um, that really engaged the people, and yeah, it was hilarious. The freaking West Texas Rednecks, they were awesome. And this might also show how, even back in 1999, I, I as a dirty dog back in 1999, I guess an 11-year-old dirty dog puppy, <laughs> never liked being, being in the pop culture bubble. Who was Master P in the No Limit Soldiers, Mr. Beverly Hills? <laughs> Master P and the No Limit Soldiers were initially like, okay, so No Limit Records is the name of a rap rap label. Master P was the owner of it and also he was a rapper. His one hit is entitled Make Him Say Uh, uh, Na 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 Um, and and so, yeah, it's not a very good song. Um, but he gained some popularity. Uh, later, he tried to become a pro basketball player. <laughs> and, um, but I don't know. I think for the most part, like in most rap circles, he was always kind of seen as a, a bit of a joke because he was always, you know, having like huge gold chains and his make him say uh and stuff like that so it's funny that he was the one to sign up with wcw but yeah in wrestling um yeah he mostly associated with like conan and Rey mysterio so for the most part yeah so in words master p is no dennis rodman is no randy macho man savage my mom always called master p during this time master uh, Master Pooh, I believe, was the was the, the name there. Master Pooh. How old do you think my mom is with that? You think she's like seventy nine years old? <laughs> Beverly Hills, whatever. Give me five seconds. Jeez, that was like the oldest old person voice I've ever seen heard you use. You're welcome. So that's yeah, that's right along. Here. So the main event of Bash of the Beach in 1999 saw Randy Savage winning the WCW title again in a tag match where he and Sid Vicious <laughs> beat Stain and Kevin Nash. The thing was, Savage was in a woman-beating storyline previous on Nitro, and Turner Brass was upset with that storyline. To explain that tag team match, that whoever scored the victory yeah. walked away with the WCW World Heavyweight title. Which I think is stupid in general. Yeah. I hate those matches. So I guess, what's your 
What's your thoughts on low rent storylines as such? I described about Randy Savage and them putting the world title on him after the brass and Turner was outraged by his storyline. Yeah, that's another example of one of those things that uh, one of those nuanced storylines that wrestling doesn't usually get right. Domestic violence. That's a, you know, those that always comes out terribly and this was another example of it and yeah you shouldn't be putting the guy in that domestic storyline domestic violence storyline with uh with the title didn't come across well um yeah and it's it, you don't want to anger that that parent company uh that's a that's not a good step and i don't like to uh beat the dead but macho man be a man <laughs> you talk about jericho i need a i need a minute Okay. Go, t- go talk about Jericho for the next 60 seconds. Okay. On page 239, I quote, Meanwhile, Chris Jericho, who had always been told that he was too small, couldn't sell tickets, it wasn't a ratings draw, debuted on the August 9th Raw in a confrontation with The Rock and helped Gurner a 6.5 rating to Nitro's 2.37. What is ironic about this is that Nitro segment, he destroyed future Dallas Page, who was on his website, who on his website had stated that Jericho had never drawn a buy rate and wasn't a mid-event caliber wrestler. I wanted to bring up this quote because I just find it, find it funny that, you know, a couple months prior, DDP was given the world title, and he was never given the chance before, and, you know, to tie it in with Chris Jericho, Jericho has never given the much of a chance in WCW to walk away with a world title or even a mid event pitcher, mid event you know, match. You know, we, Mr. Beverly Hills and I talked about it last podcast about about the Goldberg and Jericho storyline where Jericho wanted to do the storyline with Goldberg and fans were getting into it and Goldberg nixed it because Hogan and Nash first got in his ear and poo-pooed on it so i just find it funny that yeah jericho's debut on raw tripled tripled that nitro uh, nitro by rate and mr beverly hills i you know quoted the quote about chris jericho coming in on raw and me finding it funny that ddp that the the, the jericho segment when i went against ddp ddp segment ddp pooped on Jericho on his website, I guess. What's your thoughts on DDP pooping on Jericho saying that he was never never drawn a buy rate and was never a bit of a caliber wrestler even though Jericho was never given the chance in WCW? Well, my my thought, if this was at the same... Did, he, did it say that DDP put this up like in 1999? I'm not sure. I, okay, because if I guess it I was... I assumed he... To me, it came yeah. across that he did. Right, me too. Um, I don't know. I think you can write that off as DDP being a company man. You know, just like, well, yeah, if he admits that uh, it was a poor decision, well, then he's kind of admitting that his company's uh, in the wrong. So, eh, I can see that. But, um, yeah, that, that Jericho debut was awesome. Uh, and the whole thing around that was really cool and, and really well done. So... I, I was into that. I guess when when was the period in wrestling where the size of the wrestler didn't matter when it came to the main event pitcher? I guess I, I guess in guys like Jericho been one Eddie 
jumping over to WWF, they were pushed as main event status stars, and they're about six foot, if not a tad bit shorter. Yeah. I don't know. Sadly, I think that's still there. Um, and we've, you know, we've heard things within the last few years that, like, kind of the time right before Triple H took over de- developmental that the old, oh, I almost said a Hogan voice. I can't do a very good Vince voice, but here's my Vince voice. If you're under six foot, don't apply. <laughs> and that was that was the old thing there. So um, it's it's still there for, and it seems as if it's kind of going away. But um, yeah, I guess. Do you feel like DDP's viewpoint was justified in regards to Jericho when he was in WCW? Since WCW never pushed Jericho as a main event status star when he was there. What's that? Can you say that one more time? Do you feel like DDP's viewpoint of Jericho never drawn a bite right? It wasn't a mid event caliber wrestler justified because WC never never pushed Jericho as such? Yeah, it's one of those self fulfilling prophecies. I thought this when I was reading your notes and I was like, that's a good that's a good question. Like that's what, like how do you how can you say he would have been because he was never given a chance? Like when we look at, you know, Nash in 95 or whatever, we have data. You know, we can say poor drawing champion, right? You can't say Jericho poor drawing champion because he was never champion or he's never in the main event. How can you say that he didn't draw because he wasn't there? Yeah, because I guess, you know, I was mentioned when you walked off for a little bit that, <laughs> Sorry. No, that, that that's what we talked about that last week with Jericho and Goldberg. That yeah. the fans wanted it, Jericho wanted it, but Goldberg nixed it because Hogan and Nash talked in his ear, and Jericho is too small, yada, yada, yada. Right. Lottie frickin' da, who gives a fart, whatever. So, <laughs> I'll kick it to you on your, <laughs> I kick it to you on your ne- next couple of points, Mr. Beverly Hills. Okay, my next point was just that, like, in general they were throwing around these stipulations like you <laughs> went over on the uncensored 99 one uh champion wcw president for life uh retirement stipulations and none of them were followed and i just thought i just wanted to bring that up that and that i think that is um one of the hugest devaluations of uh, the company is when you don't live up to stipulations. I, At least for a little bit, even they were like day long things. I feel like that. I feel feel like killing off stipulations. We're still feeling the effects of it now. You know, okay, we'll, in in what? We'll in get which one are you talking about? Ric Flair at WrestleMania twenty four. Oh, yeah. He wrestled his retirement match. Probably he never had a WWF match again, but you know he had the Australian Hulkamania tour. Afterwards, he wrestled TNA. Same with Mick Foley in 2000. Mm-hmm. You know, only person I can think of that kept to that their stipulation was Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 26. But then again, yeah. then again, I've heard for a while that Shawn wanted to retire and was waiting for the right moment, moment and right feud to happen, and it happened at WrestleMania 26. Yeah, but I guess when I saw that saw your note about, you know, stipulations and 
No, that yeah, that just made me think of that. It even seemed like even nowadays that that WWE at least I can speak on WWE's and that strict they don't even follow through with the yeah. their stipulations. They kill their stipulations and don't ma- matter much anymore and all that. Right, and I oh, I hate it when uh, when that doesn't follow through. But I don't know, Mister Beverly Hills. What? I while rock and roll all night <laughs> and party every day. <laughs> yup, there was a Kiss concert on Nitro, and it did a really, really bad rating. Uh, why? Why are there concerts? Because they want to party every day. Yeah, want to party every day. And I and, suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I here's my request. All okay. concerts be replaced with tanks. So I take it at WrestleMania 25 and Kid Rock, Sun, oh God, the women's Kid division, Rock. and... My favorite diva, Santina Barada, to the <laughs> ring. You didn't like that. No, if they all would have ridden a tank to the ring, it would have been 10 million times better. Yes. Could you imagine that? I just hope that the sun, wave, <laughs> the sun waves of the tank doesn't shake down the stage and break the ring. But, and then, and then it, no, not going to say it. But I guess to the question that you posed in the notes, thoughts on concerts yes. at wrestling events. Yes. I know. I Well, I just don't like them. I, like, I noted at WrestleMania 25 they had one with Kid Rock. It's like they've been having some, at least, you know, whatever artists do one or two songs at WrestleMania the last few years. I always use them as a bathroom break. Okay. And, and I mean, and that's... With WrestleMania being now a four-hour show... I can understand it, yeah. I, I can, too. Um, in 1999, television time was very, very valuable. And if you need to pad out your three-hour show with um, with concerts, maybe you should consider not being a three-hour show. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. Sorry I, for cutting you off. No, that's fine. I mentioned before that I'm a subscriber to WrestleObserver.com and... Brian Alvarez has mentioned many a times before, which I want to get your thoughts on, Mr. Beverly Hills, that Brian's mentioned that concerts and wrestling most of the time never go never go goes well hand in hand. That for the viewers at home, you know, like I mentioned, find it to be absolutely boring most of the time. It's bathroom breaks, nacho yeah. breaks, whatever. But for the viewers in the arena live, yeah, it's great. So I guess it I want, might be just a break. Yeah. I don't know if it. I don't know if I if I were going to a wrestling show that I want to necessarily see a concert, but whatever. Oh, there's a tank. There, yeah, there it goes. Frick, I swear, I live on the street that has the most motorcycles go up and down it. I, you, you'd think that I live in a freaking demo derby <laughs> arena or something. Mr. With how many people go by? And I apologize for all the listeners that have to listen to the dumb motorcycles go past my house, Mister Beverly Hills. That brings more color to mid-event status radio. Uh, you know, when when me and Mrs. Hills look for houses, an office is on the top of the list. And uh, hopefully it would be one that wouldn't be next to a busy freaking motorcycle track. <laughs> I was going to say, talk about a busy motorcycle track, but that would be a horrible transition to my next quote, Mr. Beverly Hills. It, it, it really would. Just... 
<laughs> there is no transition. Just go to your okay, next call. I, from pages <laughs> 243 and 244, a strange little man by the name of Bill Bush, who started at Turner almost a decade earlier as an accountant, was put in charge of put in charge as executive vice president. Because he knew virtually nothing about pro wrestling, about pro wrestling. TV, TV producer Craig Leathers was put in charge of creative. And who was working under, under him? Doing all the great grunt work and putting the shows together? None other than three men who had helped get, get WCW into the mess in the first place. Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Nash, and Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> so... My first question, well, I guess I got done dirty re- little research as I did about Hoochie's <laughs> yeah. earlier, but do you know anything about Bill Bush and Craig Leathers? Yeah, yeah, and this will go to your next question. Just as you don't know about him doesn't mean that no one knows about him. What can I say? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> let me, I want to read Dirty Dog's quote. Are you surprised they put a couple people that I don't remember hearing about? Oh well, gosh! If they're if they're people that you've never heard about, I guess what place do they have running a wrestling <laughs> Give me a break, Gorilla! Gosh, oh, jeez! <laughs> Just stuff a hug dog in your mouth, Gorilla. <laughs> well, God, uh, I know more about Craig Leathers. Craig Leathers is a yeah long time guy that's been in the TV and the production end of, uh, of wrestling. And, and where, why don't the, 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 the writers are so mean to Bill Bush, a strange little man. What does that have to do with his, um, you know, like business acumen, a strange little man. Well, that's rude. Well, talk about being rude. And all turb Brian Alvarez is short and little too, so. Oh, strange little man. I'm going to put that, preface everything. I say, well, strange little man, but whatever. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't know a lot about Bill Bush, to be okay, honest. Okay, because I know I've heard of his name before, but I just didn't know who those two guys were. And like I said, I could have done research in the That's last funny. week, but I didn't. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know a ton about him. And I mean, like, um... I guess it kind of in general of your second question, it's, I mean, they were just in, like, Bill Bush was more in power for the business end, uh, whereas, you know, um, the other guy, Craig Leathers, was in charge more of the TV production end, and um, then you have those other guys that are in charge of the more of the creative end. Uh, you, granted, you already uh, said this before, Mr. Beverly Hills, but I want to read this per Okay, do it. We're on the advertising agency. We, we're the advertising agency. <laughs> they won't even tell us who's going to be there. For God's sake, don't miss it. That just <laughs> makes me laugh that, yeah, like you mentioned earlier, you know, in, in the regards to the Great American Bash 1999 pay-per-view that, they don't even tell the advertisers who's going to yeah. be at the show. Because they Certainly. didn't know. Long-term booking people. Do it. <laughs> so on page uh, 245, and I quote, On October 3rd, it happened. The beginning 
of the end. What is it, you may ask? It was the day Vince Russo signed his WCW contract. Yep. Just wanted to note, note that. Yep. Well, that's no, that's a huge point in WCW's history. This is where it begins. It really is the beginning of the end. Um, and whether you believe that, you know, Russo did it or not, or what level of responsibility he should be assigned for the death of WCW, uh, his hiring is more emblematic of the fact that, like, we're just doing whatever right now. We're, we're throwing anything at the wall, bring in Russo, whatever. Um, and it, and it goes to, you know, the, the bigger point that 1999 was all about these just kind of like, uh, kind of like hotshot decisions, um, decisions made off the cuff, that kind of thing. And I know we've talked about it before and I always find it funny that Russo gets brought up and you know, we mentioned it before that Russo and WWF and Russo and WCW were two completely different animals because, like you mentioned before, Russo and the WWF had the ultimate editor in Vince McMahon. In WCW, yep. he didn't have the ultimate editor and pretty much the storylines that he wanted to do in WWF that McMahon next, he was pretty out in WCW. And, right. And all the bad booking got thrown on, on Russo because of that. Yeah. I mean, like, and it's, and it's said in the in the chapter, Russo is a very creative man. He's got a ton of ideas. They just really need to be kind of honed down, refined, a lot of them, you know, thrown aside, um, and left to his own devices, things get a little crazy and a little muddled. Or very crazy, very muddled. I know to kind of back up what you just said about Russo, which leads to my next quote from page 246. Russo was good. Not writing wrestling TV, mind you, but it's spinning folks into believing that he his buddy Ed Ferreira, who also who'd also jumped with him, were the sole reason behind the WWF success. I guess I wanted to mention that, that I find it funny that Russo jumped from WWF to WCW at this time because his biggest gripe about the WWF that they were adding another two hour show each week, WWF SmackDown making him write four hours of storylines that he didn't want to, want to take on. Not because of money, but he wanted to spend time with his family that he said on uh, on, on an MLW, MLW radio podcast from June 8th, 2014. So, to me, I wanted to pose a question. If you had to add another two hours of writing TV on WWF for four hours, the why did then why jump to WCW where he had to write for five hours of television every week? Yeah, I, th- I think the point was they wanted him to write two more hours without a pay increase. And uh, with WCW, it was for a pay increase. Like, to, to justify that time away from his family, he wanted a pay increase, which makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, and I think also... I think McMahon was also willing to give him a pay increase, but oh, okay. Yeah, then McMahon, then Russo said he wanted to spend time with his kids. Then McMahon said, "Well, I pay you enough to hire a nanny." <laughs> but you know, then again, you know, like the quote that 
Russo likes to spin yarn to <clears throat> build up his for you know build up his writing resume. But then again, we know that Brian Alvarez doesn't have a you know isn't on the greatest in terms with Russo and vice versa. So. Sure. Yeah. But uh, I guess my next quote about or next question about that. I guess no matter anyone's track record, could anyone be hired at this time to help the sink the the sinking Titanic known as WCW? Yeah, uh, no, I think um, you could have brought in the best writer, and they could have got them like back to level, maybe. Um, and maybe not to just the wreck that 2000-2001 WCW becomes. But um, it really was a huge hole in the Titanic. You are correct in that. You're totally correct. So I don't know. Well, actually, I, I wanted to mention that because, you know, I'm not a Russo advocate or anything, but I feel like at times Russo gets bashed a lot. And, yes. And I feel like, you know, with our review of the Death of WCW series, that... You know, guys like Nash and you know Sullivan and other form- and Dusty Rhodes and for- other former wrestlers, Ole Anderson put in the role as lead Booker. You know, they they suck just as bad as Russo. Yes. So I don't feel like it's fully right to put it on the back of just one man, one Booker. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll go to my next point. On Halloween Havoc 1999 saw Hogan walk out in street clothes, whisper something in the ear of Sting, laying down for him and lost a WCW title to him. Then, in the same pay-per-view, Sting had a non-title match with WCW United States Champion Goldberg, where Goldberg won and held up the WCW belt, which makes sense because I don't know why. You know, this all happened the first night Russo and Ferrer were bookers. It's not like Hogan didn't want to lose. Looks like he did. Whatever else. I guess I wanted to mention that because I want to get your thoughts on Hogan having a temper tantrum about Russo's booking ideas. Because it seemed like that Hogan didn't like whatever ideas Russo had. So he went out there and lost the title to Sting because that's what Russo wanted. And Hogan just had a temper tantrum. Yeah. Oh, Russo. Well, I guess oh, I didn't want to... Russo. Like I said earlier, I don't want to put the blame on Russo, but I guess I wanted to mention Hogan's temper tantrum because we've talked about before about Hogan's creative control. <laughs> yes. And I just find it funny that, you know, people have temper tantrums because somebody new was brought in to, I guess be a booker or what we mentioned before as our supervisors and I'm sure yeah. if somebody gets brought in for me as my new supervisor and I had a temper tantrum I and if I would have walked out like Hogan did I yeah. wouldn't have a job and I'm sure a job, right? like for you if there's a new principal came in you yeah. threw a temper tantrum walked out I'm sure <laughs> no. you wouldn't have a job either no so. no you are correct on that so I guess that just makes me laugh about pro wrestling and how pro wrestling is so yep. I guess I'll go to my next quote from pages 255 and 256 Bush went crazy about how upset Turner's standards and practices have been lately 
Their biggest complaint was Flair's juice job on the pay-per-view, all in havoc, which had also been a big deal internally because he bled more in his match than, than the guy did in the match that got stopped because of blood. It was, it was said in no uncertain terms that there would be no more swearing, no more bleeding, <laughs> no more ref bumps, and no more hitting women without 100% authorization given. Bush even went as far to as far to say that if things didn't change, Turner would consider would uh, would consider shutting the shutting down the company outright. Later, despite the fact that these decrees should have have helped make the uh, product better, fans were sick of constant ref bumps. It wasn't like swearing and beating up women was going to turn the company around. Russo yeah. blamed these limitations for the company failing under his leadership. I guess I want to get your thoughts on Russo trying to put the blame on those restrictions on why he failed as a booker. Yeah, I think that's just truly, truly silly. Like like it said, um, th- things like ref bumps aren't going to turn the product around. Uh, being violence on women, whatever, that's, that's a poor cop-out. Poor at best. Yeah, and I just find it funny that even though I was trying to be an advocate to Russo in a sense a couple minutes ago, yeah. I just find it funny that Russo was trying to put blame on the limitations he was given from Turner Turner's standards and practices that <coughs> that he didn't seem like he didn't like the fact that he was being I guess edited in, in a sense, being put boundaries put on his creative control, I guess his creative mind. Yeah, well, sometimes he needed those boundaries, though. So, then they, in the book, uh, the authors talked about the tournament for the WCW title. That that making sense? So, I found the brackets online on ddtdigest.com. Oh, and I love that you did, man. Okay, I, I can pull it up on my telephone. So I had the link. Oh, don't go through it all. Don't. Is that what you were, you were going to go through the whole tournament? There's 32 people in it. It just didn't make sense because I can uh, talk about you know talk about some of the asterisks. The Bret Hart won the United States title in a match by putting Goldberg in the tournament for the World Heavyweight Title. Then uh, another asterisk was for whatever reason Medusa was given a second chance in the tournament. After losing to Ming, yeah, let's let's just say that in the first round, um, only three matches don't have interference. In the sixteen first round matches, only three matches are not decided by interference. And yeah, we have things like Medusa getting a second chance. We got the championship in it. Then I know uh, Stain also advanced over remaining in the tournament due to an injury that Maine suffered you know, in the, by the hands of the total package Lux Luger and Miss Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, the final four came down on November 21st, 1999, where Bret Hart advanced over Stain, and Chris Benoit advanced over Jeff Jarrett, putting, oh, Jeff Jarrett, or putting Bret Hart versus Chris Benoit, where Bret Hart won the WCW title. So, I just... I just wanted to mention that, that I wanted to it's, thank DDT yeah. Digest, 
com for having a I feel like the easiest, clearest, simplest brackets right. for that title tournament. Yeah, and it is. It's that's well done. I would encourage everybody to go read those and actually read the recaps of 1999 Nitro because they're all like linked to the from from the um, from the bracket there, and, and they're funny. <laughs> you, you should read those. So yeah, those are those are cool. Mister Beverly Hills, I probably shouldn't, but for my next note. <laughs> this is the last one because I know this was a, a mega cast. Yeah, well, yes, and it has certainly, certainly has been. Vince Russo had a quote unquote genius <sighs> idea. Yeah, quote when unquote it, is right. When it came to Start K 1999, Start K 1999 was held in some <laughs> town in Canada called Montreal. Yeah. And the WCW title match, the main event was champion, I believe, Bret Hart versus Goldberg. Yeah. With the special guest referee as Rowdy Roddy Piper playing the role of Earl Hebner. Yeah. Bret Hart played the role of Shawn Michaels. And when Bret Hart put Goldberg in a sharpshooter, Earl Piper, or Roddy (laughs) Hebner, called for the bell. That fans shed in on it. Yeah, they did. Oh. I w- wanted to mention that because what one, it gives me a chance to ring my <laughs> ring bell. Yeah. And two, it gave me a chance to open up my Mountain Dew throwback. <laughs> and three, why go back oh my to the gosh. Montreal screw job? God, why do they keep doing this? Why? And everybody is guilty of it. To the answer your question, WWF's why, guilty. WCW's guilty. Why? To answer your question, why, Mister Beverly Hills? To quote the total package, I don't know. Yeah, right. That's about the best answer you can have. Golly, I just find it silly that I wanted to mention that that stupid quote called genius idea Vince Russo had stuff like that makes people poop on Vince Russo's. Ideas and the Vince Russo wonders why people shat on his ideas. Yeah, right. Here's what instance. This is a good example. Yeah, it is a good example. The next Jeez. example brings me to my next quote in regards to the Star K1999 in the next night's Nitro. This is from pages 264 to 265. Russo, I, I write at the negative internet response from the two shows, Star Kid and Nitro went ballistic on WCW Live, saying none of this was his fault, and the reason ratings hadn't turned around was because standards and practices had banned, among other things, angles like Roddy Piper calling (laughs) Ronda Sai fat, and Ed Ferreira mocking Ross's Jim Ross, mocking Ross's Bell's palsy. So, kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, what's your thoughts on Russo trying to put the blame again on standards and practices for his, his poor ratings, not his poor booking and storylines? Just foolish. It's so dumb. They didn't do anything to cause that. That's so stupid. Yeah. You know, I just find it s- silly, too, that, you know, 
if Russo complained about McMahon pin limitations border boundaries on his time in WWF, I'm sure we we may have heard about it by now. Yeah. So what's the difference between having you know the ultimate editor in McMahon mm-hmm, right. in WWF to the Turner standards and practices yeah. in WCW? So what's the difference? Well, I mean, I'm sure you know USA has their own standards and practice department too, um, and you know that going against those evident you know eventually bit them in the butt too. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. That's so dumb. It's just, again, he's looking for scapegoats, looking for, well, I couldn't do what I wanted because they wouldn't let me do this and they wouldn't let me do that and blah, blah, blah. Well, talk about scapegoats, Mr. Beverly Hills, and you question why I opened up my third pop for the podcast. <laughs> this podcast went, is, went almost as long as a mode of sleep I got last night. Oh, sorry, dude. That's fine. I... Get the lack of sleep. Everybody works, man. I get the lack of sleep because I love talking to Mr. Beverly Hills. I and I love the podcast here at mideventstatus.com. I love the people, Mr. Beverly Hills. Yes, so do but I. To back to my, you know, the question and the points that I just find it funny that yeah, Russo doesn't want to take blame for anything. He wants to pass the buck on to other people. And we've talked about it before on podcast, uh, and all in regards to the creative control. I guess it's human nature to try to pass the blame on, on other people. It's easier to, you know, if I did something wrong, it's easier for me to pass the blame on you, Mister Beverly Hills, Hills, instead of taking it on my back and saying I'm the one that yeah. is in the wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the easiest way to do it. So I know not the most correct, but it's the easiest. Because also my notes after everything was done, I'll, I'll quote some of my notes I sent to you. Okay. Holy balls! <laughs> this chapter was hard for me to get through. Besides it being long, a lot of bad decisions were yeah. made in 1999. Yeah. I guess. What's your thoughts on WCW going? So great. And last week we recorded the podcast up on top of the CNN towers. Now we're on the elevator yeah. going back down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. 99 was, uh, uh, like I said, it's kind of when their problems kind of came home uh, and the and it started to really affect them. The, the poor decisions that they had made in, in 97 and 98 are now really starting to affect them in 99 and really, um, you know, make it happen and, and, uh, and cause them to plunge toward death. Um, yeah, they did a lot <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of crappy stuff. I felt, including that insane tournament. But, I felt yeah. extremely drained and pooped sure. reading through this chapter of 1999 and trying to, you know, get, understand everything you know like the chapter title says gambling on a savior yeah. i felt like them throwing throwing the die you know the dice trying to find the perfect thing to bring them into 2000 i just found it draining to try to figure everything out try to find logic through the logic gaps yeah. and all that that was yeah, mentally drained just trying to figure out the logic holes that was wcw 1999 mm-hmm yeah, oh, there was a lot of them. 
So, so do you have any final thoughts on the year that was, WCW 1999? No, I mean, we're definitely on the downhill swing here. I guess that's why, Mr. Beverly Hills, I found this elevator for us to record this podcast. <laughs> sure. For us, you know, last few weeks we... You know, we're in the janitor's room, we were in the boardroom, we were in Ted Turner's office, we were on top of the CNN towers, I yeah. guess. Well, it makes sense to take this elevator down. Yep. The, ele- the elevator's floor. cool in the CNN tower, too. It's, like, clear. It's like a glass elevator, so you can see as you're going down. At least that way we could uh, have our ba- you know, backs to each other and still talk. Next week, are we going to be in the, like, food court of we the could, CNN tower? We maybe? could be. I guess we just got to figure out the the best place to record next week 2001 maybe in the basement I don't know. yeah we'll, <laughs> we'll see or maybe 2001 might be uh, emanating in maybe Panama City yeah, oh, yeah Titan Tower <laughs> or Titan Towers whatever yeah I don't know so you know yeah well, for me the year that was 1999 was bad decision making yeah logic holes so on and so forth I'll see right. It seemed like in 1999, we're finally seeing WCW falling hard as a second to WWF. Yeah. And it's just sad to see that happening. Mm-hmm. They're paying for those bad decisions. I guess the game plan is bad decisions equals ba- bad times, maybe. <laughs> yes, right. Hard times. Hard times, if you will. <laughs> Hard in words of Jimmy Buffett, baby. Hard times aren't easy times. <laughs> in the words of Jimmy Buffett. So we might as well get into the plugs for the podcast since you guys are listening this far. Thank you very much. We're about the two hour and ten minute mark. Yeah. Thank you guys for hanging on this far. Mr. Beverly Hills and I dig it. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the plugs of the podcast. You guys can listen to us at our website that I plugged multiple times from this podcast just for you guys to remember it is com. again yes. com. you guys can also listen to us on our SoundCloud page soundcloud.com slash radio. that's all one word soundcloud.com slash radio. Mr. Beverly Hills I know there's a third way for us to listen yep. to I always forget about it. Yeah. What it what it is, Mr. Yeah, Beverly Hills. Yeah, listen to it how I listen to it. Listen to it through iTunes. Um subscribe, uh rate it, comment, um, talk about, you know, how manly we are and make us climb those charts so we can finally surpass Jim Ross and the Ross Report with his hashtag saucy attitude. Um, we need to hashtag sauce it on him, beat him, and become the top rated podcast. Because just like you know, we talked about last week on the podcast, Mr. Beverly Holmes, I hope you enjoyed me tagging you yes. in the post on Twitter about Jim Ross's hashtag saucy attitude. Definitely. We need to beat down that saucy attitude, dude. Everybody, I hope you join us on our Facebook and our Twitters. Get hashtag Saucy Attitude trending. <laughs> yep, yep. Trending worldwide on yes. Facebook and Twitter. Hashtag Saucy Attitude. Facebook.com slash main event status radio. You guys can like us there, interact with us there, and all that fun stuff. Facebook.com slash main event status radio. Mr. Beverly Hills, how can they interact with you on the Twitter? Uh, at Beverly Hills MES. 
guys can also talk to me on the Twitter machine at Dirty Dog M E S, and that's dog, as in D A W G, Dirty Dog M E S. Yes. This was a fun podcast. Yeah. 1999, that was WCW. And fans, I have an inkling that year 2000 may be just as long. Maybe. Or close we'll to see. it. We'll see. So, for Mr. Beverly Hills, I am the Dirty Dog Darcy. We'll catch you guys next time in the year 2000. In the year 2000. In the year 2000. Ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I like that. That's fantastic. That is our show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>